Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati, your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Jordan Bonomo. Hello. Thank you for joining us for this edition of a podcast for the National Stroke Education Center. I'm Jordan Bonomo, an emergency physician and neurointensivist here at the University of Cincinnati, and I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Aaron Grossman. He's got an MD and a PhD. He's faculty in the departments of neurology and neurosurgery. He's co-director of our Comprehensive Stroke Center. He's a neurointerventionalist extraordinaire and the guy I call when I need to look something up about stroke and I can't find a textbook that has an answer. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I have the unbelievable privilege of working with you and guys like you every day. But for those people who don't have access to a neurointerventionalist who's willing to share their expertise every day, we're going to explore some of the questions that other people might have. I'm going to try to probe your brain a little bit, see if we can figure out what the rest of us should know about neurointerventional stroke care. You recorded some sessions for us about the use of TPA with and without neurointervention neurointervention with and without CPA. It seems like the matrix is getting a lot more complicated. As a follow-up to that, I want to talk to you today about what the rest of us should know. So lots of emergency physicians and stroke physicians working in places don't have access to a neurointerventionalist. What kinds of things would you share with them, the people who don't work with people like you every day? What do you want the rest of us to know about the fundamentals of neuroIR? Well, I think the first thing to understand is when to call us. When it comes to acute stroke care, the times to call us are when a patient comes in within 24 hours of their uh, last seen normal and when they're found to have a large vessel occlusion or narrowing in one of the blood vessels that may be flow limiting and resulting in hypoperfusion of a certain area of the brain. So if I get that right, anytime within the first 24 hours, if I've got a finding on CT angiography that I think might correlate with the symptoms that I'm seeing, I should think about giving you a call. Yeah, we can review the imaging with you. We can talk about the patient's symptoms, talk about where they are in their stroke course, and and try to understand whether there's a uh, interventional therapy that we can provide. You guys are on call all the time. It's it's a miserable lifestyle. I don't know why you chose it, but we're glad you did. You just said 24 hours. What, what if I call you at, at 25? Is that is that too far out? Recently, there have been some trials that have started to look at tissue perfusion as a way to assess whether uh, a patient is still eligible for interventional therapies. And I would go more by tissue perfusion to say that there's still brain that's salvageable and still able to to be reperfused safely with benefit than by time criteria in particular. Now, those time criteria are listed in the the guidelines, but we're certainly open to off-label care. Okay. So if I'm going to translate that for everybody, what I'm hearing is that the clock is being de-emphasized and perfusion imaging and tissue imaging are being emphasized. And in your world, 24 hours might not even be the limit. Right. And certainly in, in patients with posterior circulation strokes, we're, we're very willing to go beyond 24 hours because the consequences of leaving somebody with a basal or occlusion and having them locked in are just so devastating. You literally read my mind. That's where I was going. So you mind sharing a war story with us? 
How far out have you gone in a posterior circulation event? I think I've gone out to 36 hours. Think it was worth it? It's always hard to say. We have a history of, of being really proud about our angiographic results when the clinical results aren't so good. So, you know, it's very patient specific. But I do think uh, there is value to looking uh, a family in the eye. And, and as long as we feel like our therapy has not put the patient at higher risk than leaving them alone, looking that family in the eye and saying we did everything we could. I like being able to do that clinically and say, you know, we, we left uh, no stones unturned and we provided the best opportunity for your family member. Is that controversial though? Posterior circulations outside 24 hours for NeuroIR? Posterior circulations in general are getting controversial. There was recently a randomized controlled trial of, of patients with basilar artery occlusions that showed that there was no significant uh, improvement or there was no significant benefit of endovascular therapy for posterior circulation occlusions. And so it's a little difficult to justify doing any of it. That's so interesting. I, I've lived the experience of taking a patient to NeuroIR, putting them in the hands of someone like you at 24 hours and watching them recover over six months to a limited disability, reasonably normal life. I, I know that that patient's p-value is somewhat irrelevant. And I know we're not supposed to practice by our last patient and by anecdote. Um, what was it we were taught when we were training? The plural of anecdote is not data. Uh, but nonetheless, it's hard to look data like that in the face and then think about these patients whose faces I can remember and say it wasn't worth it. I feel like it might have been. Well, this was the problem in, in anterior circulation strokes as well for years and years and years until we finally found uh, the right patients to intervene on. Those patients who had a, a clearly defined large vessel occlusion who came in early in the course who were very disabled from, from their acute stroke. So my recent clinical experience has been that CT perfusion imaging is very difficult in the posterior circulation. What's your preference? If I call you as a, as a stroke doctor, an emergency physician, I say, hey, Dr. Grossman, I got a patient with a posterior circulation insult, I think. They're probably outside 12 hours. What kind of tissue imaging would make you most comfortable going after their lesion? MRI, but in most facilities, that's not necessarily available at two, two o'clock in the morning. Right. So you just, you know, you go with your CT scan, um, if a CT perfusion, if you have it, but, you know, look the family in the eye, explain the risks and benefits and, and explain what happens if the patient uh, gets no therapy, that they end up locked in and then you move forward. I feel like you're describing the art of medicine. It's the game that we all actually like to play. Sometimes it's nice not to be constrained by the handcuffs of guidelines. All right. Well, let's just say that I call you and I say, hey, I got a, I got a patient with a pretty clear issue, right? They got a left M1 occlusion or five hours out. They're not going to qualify for uh, fibrolytic therapy. I'd like you to take them because their aspect score is good. Their CT perfusion is a small core, big penumbra. Their mismatch ratio is delicious. You're salivating to go, right? So for those who don't do neuro IR, what happens? I take that patient to you in the suite, someone preps them for you, and then you attack them with a bunch of needles and wires. What do you do? So we will have that patient on the table. A lot of times we'll do this without general anesthesia, but there are some patients who are simply unruly and, and require some general anesthesia. Um, that institutes a delay. It may drop the pressure. So there's still debate as to whether general anesthesia is the right thing to do uh, for, for patients across the board. But usually we can get away with it without anesthesia. And to clarify, you're talking about total intravenous anesthesia as opposed to inhalational, or are we putting these patients under mask in general? 
we would prefer in our current workflow to just use some conscious sedation with with fentanyl and versed uh, as needed but increasingly ketamine's been helpful certainly when there's a a, a patient uh, who for example has a right mca stroke doesn't necessarily appreciate that they're having a stroke and try, keeps trying to get off the table anesthesia is going to be required all right so so if you need anesthesia or you don't need anesthesia either way you start moving forward once that patient's calm enough for you to have a stationary target right yeah. We access the groin if the groin looks like the the best way to get to the to the clot. Uh, we're increasingly doing radial access, especially for patients with uh, steep aortic arches and some specific vascular anatomy that makes the the radial access the pathway of choice. Okay, well, so as an intensivist, when I access an artery, I'm using a small four five French catheter to measure pressures or something. What size catheters are you using there? What kind of sheets are we putting in? So we'll put it, typically put an eight French sheath in the leg. Uh, when we have anesthesia, uh, we'll use an eight and a half French sheath so they can have an A-line off of our sheath because uh, the, the guide catheter systems that we use to get across uh, the arch and then re remain stable across the arch as we pass uh, other catheters back and forth through them have an outer diameter that becomes occlusive in an eight French sheath. So you said a guide catheter. So that goes up first or you got a wire? How's that going? A wire first. We bring a smaller catheter that has a, a shape that we think is going to be amenable to getting into their uh, carotid. And uh, behind that catheter, we have a pretty uh, firm uh, guide catheter, about 90 centimeters long, that has a relatively flexible distal portion and a relatively uh, stiff proximal portion. The distal portion allows us to get around a tight curve in an aortic arch into a carotid. Uh, and then the proximal portion uh, remains stiff, hopefully without kinking around that curve, and allows you to basically go back and forth with, with catheter after catheter. And then you, you, you shoot some contrast, right? Right. And then once you identify your lesion, uh, you can start going up with your uh, devices to try to get that clot out. So uh, the first thing we go up with is a wire uh, that's a very, very flexible, very, very small wire. And behind that is a, a, what we call a microcatheter, which is a tiny catheter about the size of a string of spaghetti. Behind that, we have an aspiration catheter, which is uh, quite flexible at the distal portion and proximally, again, stiffer. Uh, but the distal portion is flexible enough to get around the uh, the cavernous carotid and around a lot of the tortuosity that that uh, would be required to traverse to get to the, the clot in the middle cerebral artery, for example. Okay. So you get up to the clot and then you do what to it? So there are two schools of thought. First is that we should be grabbing clots. And the second school of thought is that we should be sucking them out. Okay. There are uh, new trials all the time that suggest that one is better than the other. Often these trials are paid for by the companies that make one device or the other. Got it. So there's maybe some bias in there. Exactly. So from a purely financial standpoint, from a uh, trauma to the vessel wall standpoint, uh, we are, uh, our shop uh, does an initial pass of aspiration to try to avoid opening up an expensive stent retriever, which is basically like a, a tube of chicken wire on a string, I tell families, to try to grab the clot and pull it out. So it's a great visual image, right? And lots of people understand what that would look like, especially here in the Midwest where people actually raise chickens. That's right. 
so so once we get our uh, aspiration catheter or the 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 tube that will ultimately be sucked up to a hooked up to a vacuum uh, pump uh, onto the clot, uh, then we make an attempt to try to just suck that clot out in its entirety. If that first pass of aspiration alone is not successful, then we have to step up our game a little bit. We'll go back up to the clot, bring that microcatheter, the, the, the string of spaghetti through that clot over the little tiny wire, and then pass that stent retriever in, release it into the clot by pulling back the microcatheter. So it, re it, it releases, it expands out, uh, and then bring the aspiration catheter uh, up to the clot. So now you have a, a two-headed two approach of trying to pull the clot out with the with the stent retriever and suck it out at the same time. I don't think in metric very well. How many centimeters away from the entrance to your arterial sheath are you doing this if you're accessing it in the groin? Like how long are these wires? How long are you playing? Like 120 centimeters? How far up are you? Yeah, usually we're about 100 and 110 uh, centimeters up because the longer, the long aspiration catheters uh, are about 125 centimeters long. And sometimes we have those hubbed at the top of the thigh. That's sort of mind boggling for someone like me. It's really cool to be able to do all that stuff from, from such a, a distal yeah, vantage point. From a leg. That's crazy. Yeah. So you get the clot out, right? Cause that's what you do. I've seen you do miraculous clot extractions and you're good at this. So you get the clot out and then you want to decide how good the vessel looks. My understanding is you squirt a little contrast and then you make some sort of assessment. It's a ticky something or other. That's right. We have to decide whether we got it all out uh, or if we didn't get it all out, whether we got enough of it out to make a, a clinically uh, significant difference for the patient. Uh, some of that art of, of uh, medicine comes in trying to figure out what areas of the brain are still uh, lacking blood supply because there's a, maybe a little clot and whether those are going to be clinically significant areas or lower priced real estate. And we ultimately have to decide whether we're going to go back and try to get those clots if they're, uh, if they're too far away. We might be able to use some uh, intraarterial thrombolytic. Even if it's been more than four and a half hours from onset? Is that kind of standard practice anyway to do a little bit, just a little squirt? Mm -hmm. Maybe. It's, it, there's not great data for it. Okay. If the patient bleeds, then you know we always second guess whether we should have done it or not. But my understanding is that still happens once in a while, right? You guys look at it, you're like, eh, just a little milligram here or there or something will do it. Okay. So then you, let's just say that you've gotten what you think is adequate perfusion. How, how do you actually calculate a Timmy score or Tiki score? Pardon me. I'm in the wrong, wrong organ. Tiki score. How do you do that? Yeah. So getting the entire vessel uh, reperfused, the entire territory that was occluded reperfused would, would be uh, a Tiki three okay. reperfusion. Uh, getting more than half of that territory reperfused would be Tiki 2B. Getting less than half of it reperfused would be Tiki 2A. And uh, getting a channel through the clot, but no actual reperfusion of the territory is Tiki 1. And then if we just didn't, weren't able to touch that clot or weren't able to, to open anything up, then it's Tiki 0. So we're looking for Tiki 2B and Tiki 2 3, excuse me, Tiki 2 B and three reperfusions as a, as a marker of quality reperfusion. But you gotta, you know, you gotta really think about whether you should leave someone at, 
with a ticky 2B just because you've achieved your numerical you know, metric if it seems like an accessible lesion that, that, that's, uh, that's occluding flow to the motor cortex. So for someone who doesn't do this but is listening to you talk, I'm hearing you say that ticky 2B, while a marker of quality reperfusion, is something that you still wrestle with in your head from sort of a clinical pathologic context, do I need to do more? And this might be one of those examples where actually better is not the enemy of good. You might actually need to do better for that patient. So you guys actually struggle and wrestle with these decisions clinically, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So as someone who doesn't do it, that's actually really nice to hear because we say, oh, well, you guys got a ticky-2B. That looked great. But in your head, you're thinking, could I have done more? I will tell you in years of practice, I've never seen someone write ticky-1 in a chart. I've only ever seen 0, 2A, 2B, and 3. And I, I wonder why. In my mind, ticky-0 should essentially be an automatic consult for potential decompressive hemicranium in the right patient because I'm seeing it come. All right, so you got the clot out and I know you, so it's always a ticky 2B or three, usually a three. I've seen your work, brother. And then you pull all this gear out, right? And then you leave a gaping hole in their artery. How do you fix that? So there are closure devices that, uh, that are used to close up those holes. Some of them have a, an intravascular component and a plug on the top of the vessel that sandwiches the, the vessel uh, wall together. Some of them just have a plug on the top of the vessel. And so based on the vessel anatomy, where the puncture site was, atherosclerosis within the vessel wall, or, um, we, we may pick one or the other of, of those. There are a, a couple of other uh, options as well, but these are big holes. And once you start getting out to larger uh, holes, then, then the options get a little bit limited. So these are percutaneous closures. And as I remember, most of them have funny anaplames. Yeah, there's a there's a minx, there's an angio seal, an exo seal, per close, star close. All of these are uh, are devices that that we can use. But but ultimately, you know, the standard the standard of care there is is manual pressure. But if you have somebody who's on aspirin and plavix, came with their stroke and ended up getting TPA, and now you have an eight French hole in the leg, you're sitting there for an hour. Uh, holding pressure, and sometimes that's that's the right thing to do sure. because it's a it's a terribly atherosclerotic vessel that that just simply won't accommodate a closure device. So you get ticky three. You had a big eight French hole. Person's anticoagulated on antithrom. You got you got them on a, let's say aspirin plavix like you just described. They got a thrombolytic, um, and I call you as the neurointensivist six hours later, and I'm like, hey man, um, they're hypotensive. What's your first thought? First thought I worry about is a retroperitoneal hemorrhage. So um, we are always very careful to uh, make our needle sticks and, and our entry points uh, low uh, along that femoral artery. Certainly, you can you can get a lot of blood collecting in the thigh, um, but hopefully that that won't uh, that won't be a fatal complication. Those retroperitoneal hematomas, though, they're they're very scary. They're a big deal. So I want to look for thigh blood, and if I don't find thigh blood, they're still hypotensive. Um, hemoglobin's not going to represent an acute shift, right? So I'm going to need to send that patient for some imaging of their abdomen and pelvis looking for an RPH. That's correct. All right. Thanks. Um, okay. And then the patient's, of course, going to do well and live to fight another day because uh, you got your ticky three and they didn't have one of those retroperitoneal hemorrhages. We hope. Um, all right. If you were to be able to talk to every emergency physician out there um, and say, I would love it if you knew this about NeuroIR. Is there a rule that stands out that you you share with all of us or is what you just shared what you would love to have had the opportunity to share with more people? The thing for emergency medicine to know uh, is that we are always open to the discussion of, of whether to intervene because you know there, there are guidelines and, and then there's, as you said, the art of medicine. Um, 
that there are patients who who may not at the outset look like uh, they would be candidates for an intervention who are still salvaged. And, and then there are candidates who, who look like they're no-brainers for, for reperfusion, who for, for some reason or another may not be great candidates at all. And we just don't know what to do with those patients quite yet. As someone who both calls and receives consults all the time, I can't tell you how nice it is to hear someone say, we want the call, right? And, and we may struggle with our decision-making and we'll do it along with you, but we want the call because there's potential, even if it doesn't look like there is, and it's obvious to you. So it sounds like if I call you on someone, you're never going to yell at me and you're not going to tell me it was a dumb consult. Uh, no such thing. All right, Dr. Grossman, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you sharing your expertise with us. I think no-brainer was probably the best pun that we've heard so far in our recordings. It's an honor to work with you. Thanks so much for sharing. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, this was a podcast of the National Stroke Education Center. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center M. Craig International, and MedEd on the go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.